0: You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast.
1: So you ever done drugs? No. (laughs) I knew the answer. I just wanted to hear your uh, (laughs) strong rebuke.
0: not not as a you know not never growing up uh i, I i'm going to amend my answer so never growing up uh, i've never done illegal drugs let's let's, let's put it that oh. way right? because, it, <laughs> because
1: you know,
0: like is alcohol a drug is it but never growing up i never smoked a cigarette never did uh pot uh any of that uh i have now this is legal so i i'm not violating anything when i was in uh California uh it's legal there recreational marijuana is legal and so uh, I did I did try some of that a few years ago but you it did was like a brownie so I, or what uh no one of the uh what you call them the uh, pre-rolled
1: oh you did a joint <laughs> the pre-rolled oh that's I, that's actually new information for me <laughs> that's so funny <laughs> yeah so bought one at a uh, at a dispensary oh.
0: Right. Uh, just to see, because I had never done it as a, uh, as, you know, growing up in high school, college. I only saw it once. I just didn't hang around uh, people who did. I, you know, I was uh athlete and uh, we just kind of didn't, at least I didn't, uh, do it. You know, I'm sure there were, were people who did at yeah. my
1: school, but I just didn't see them. <laughs> it's, it's interesting to me, obviously, growing up, uh, you... You drilled that into me really young to not do drugs, and that's a good message. I think you know? that's a positive. <laughs> Nobody's got any problem with that message. Um, but I, I, I suspect I'm not a parent, but I suspect as a parent, you are forced sometimes to take hardline uh, positions that have no nuance in them. So the message. Well,
0: I think you, I think you have to as a parent. You yeah, know, otherwise, I mean, the, you know, kids understand. see an open in, yeah. an opening in the door. And they'll exploit it,
1: yeah. Right. So you I mean, say, well,
0: you can do this kind of drug, but you know, you can't do that kind of drug in this That's, type of circumstance. I don't think teenagers yeah. have that kind of mental ability to screen that out.
1: Yeah. Well, I was definitely led to believe that I was I would die and go to hell if I even saw marijuana. Um, I didn't
0: say that to you.
1: <laughs> yeah, you might as well. I didn't well say. Have. No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't
0: say that to you. you. Might
1: as well. Have. Oh really? What was the? Ma- I just said don't do it. Well, you were you, you didn't say don't do it because it's illegal, because a sixteen-year-old doesn't care that something's illegal, right? What did I
0: say was the rationale you said, for not don't doing? Don't
1: it. do it because it's stupid and rots your brain, and only loser, evil, awful, dork people do it.
0: Okay, all right,
1: all right. So was I'm like, that effective? Okay. Well, it's more. You want, effect- you want
0: to you want to reveal now some you know years later was that was that effective it
1: didn't it didn't land like you thought it would (laughs) but that's not my point okay my point is it's more effective than just telling a kid it's illegal
0: well what would have been effective i mean so you can't say it's illegal i'm certainly not going to say don't do it because i said so which i think is the lamest of all parenting tactics Uh, but if I, if I can couch it as, Hey people, it, it does negatively impact your brain at that age when you're mm-hmm. still developing. That's so true. that's true. But that, true. but that
1: nuance is not in, wasn't in the conversation. It wasn't like, don't do it now. Well, I, I, I'm not going to do that. That's a, poor, that's not good. Do it later. Do it no. when you're 40,
0: man. Yeah. Well just wait, you know, yeah. it will be fine. Just, just hold on. You know, it will be good later. I didn't say that either. Well,
1: my, what I think is interesting is that that kind of, I would have never imagined that even if it was legal, that you would ever even consider it, uh, you know, as a kid,
0: I've still never smoked a cigarette.
1: Okay. Yeah, sure.
0: Never. No. Um, I, well, we, we had, my dad drilled that into my brain when I was growing up because my, my Grandparents on my dad's side both uh, smoked uh, pretty aggressively, uh, and I remember going over there as a kid and just having these sort of negative physical reactions—just asthma, just not being able to breathe, yeah. and coming back and smelling like cigarettes. Uh, both of them passed away in their fifties, uh, and and as a result, I mean, my grandmother came and lived with us for you know briefly. Uh, and was in pretty ill health. And so I didn't need anybody to tell me not to smoke cigarettes. Yeah. Um, but the, and, and so I guess I carried that over to, uh, marijuana and didn't, didn't really see it, uh, much. So really didn't, I wouldn't even know who to, well, I, to I don't think I that you to.
1: were alone in that. Right. And, and it seems that as a country, as a society, that was the position, Hey, it's illegal. Boom! Can't nope, do it. It it's was terrible. No, that's and it's just yeah, as bad changing. as you know anything else, and um, I think that w- that's that's prevented that's carried over to other drugs and some of them, rightfully, you know, nobody's out there advocating meth. Nobody's nobody's promoting no, that as a nobody's. healthy therapeutic, but um, there's a lot of a lot of new information and science that. Certain psychedelics in some ways can be beneficial. And I think that it's interesting to see how that gets adopted and received because most people react reflexively just like you taught me to, is to say, hey, you know what, this is bad and there's really no benefit. So even if we're presented with information, with science or even testimonials to the contrary, it's hard to accept. It's hard to accept, and it's hard to change a belief that we've held for so long.
0: Well, I I think gradually, you know, societal attitudes on marijuana, for example, are changing uh, dramatically over the next ten years, and uh, it may very well be with psychedelics uh, that that those eventually change as well. I don't I don't know. I mean, it's I, they they frighten me because I I. You know, I, I wouldn't want a negative experience, and so I sometimes I hear about people that have negative experiences on it. I, I would wouldn't want that.
1: I think that you really like to be in control of the decisions that you make. Yes, and m- most people do. <laughs> you know, it's a of good course. place to be. It's n- it's not good to have a lack of control of those decisions, but those substances represent an opportunity to lose control over those de- that decision making process.
0: Yeah, I think that's what frightens me.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's pretty normal. I think it's it's it, it, people who aren't afraid of that don't make good decisions.
0: Well, it's probably not a good decision to feel comfortable being out of control of the decision-making process. Yeah, that's process. what I'm saying. You
1: would only feel yeah. comfortable lacking control over your own decision-making process if the version of you who is in control makes bad decisions anyway. At, right. <laughs> you, you go, well, How much worse could it get? I'm already screwing this up. It's true, you know. It's true. So I think that's really normal. But I was surprised to hear from our guest today, um, Rick Anstrom. His and that took a
0: turn. That took a turn. You've always that got conversation. To my
1: segues. I think this was a good one. This was not yeah. a bad, you know. But we talked to Rick, and he he's a Navy SEAL. And he had a, a pretty significant experience, positively, with psychedelics. And uh, we weren't mm-hmm. expecting it when we when we scheduled this, and we weren't expecting it when we talked to him. But that's where the conversation turned, and and we were still able to gain decision making insights from that. Um, and it was fascinating. Yeah, you know, I really enjoyed. It. Yeah.
0: Well, that, that's what I mean when it when it took a turn. I was expecting to talk to Rick about. Uh... Uh, all kinds of Navy SEAL experiences. And, and we we went to a place I did not think we were going. Yeah. So it was fascinating.
1: Well, Rick Amstrom is a highly decorated 25-year Navy SEAL. He deployed eight times as a SEAL medic, intelligence team leader, intelligence operative, and trained over 200 operators as a SEAL instructor. Rick was awarded over 40 decorations, including the Bronze Star, multiple combat action ribbons, and Sailor of the Year. He's conducted over 50 combat missions as a SEAL medic in Iraq and Afghanistan, also has led or conducted over 100 sensitive intelligence operations in dozens of countries. And today, he spends much of his time advocating to reduce the stigmas associated with trauma and promoting psychedelic therapies to treat mental health and neurological conditions like PTSD and TBI. Hope you learned something from listening to our conversation that we had with Rick Anstrom. I'm Sanger Smith. With Sean Smith, this is decidedly. Hey Rick, I'm really excited. You're 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 solidly in second place for the toughest guest we've had on this podcast.
2: (laughs) Well, who was second?
1: Wait, what was? Yeah, what was the first? My grandma.
2: Exactly. Oh, (laughs) yep, I believe it.
1: So. So I'm sorry I couldn't give you the gold medal on this one, but I think <laughs> hey, that no worries, I think I you're, yeah, you're you're you're, <laughs> you're silver all
0: alone to yourself. I I was reading your bio and holy cow, man, you've had some, you've
2: lived a life. It's uh it's been interesting. I feel like it's been a blessed life and it's had its uh, ups and downs and and uh, it's only only time to get you know continue to get better, you know, and just keep moving. I I
0: can't wait to to hear more about it. When when did you uh, go through buds?
2: Well that's a big part of the story. So my my first time I went through in 1989, my second time I went through in 2 or excuse me 1995 or 96 and then I finally graduated in 1998. Kind of how what led me to to take three times and what I actually figured out along the journey is I, I think uh, it kind of resonates with people. So it might be interesting.
1: That seems like a similar story to a lot of the a lot of the really hardcore guys out there. Like uh you know David Goggins going through it whatever three times as well that's yep. I can only imagine going through it one minute of one day, much less going through it three times
2: yeah it's, uh, it it sucks i mean there's a I wouldn't say there's a whole lot of fun about it at any time you go through it. it's a it's, it's hard to imagine beforehand the amount of pain and suffering that your your mind can you know put you through and that's uh that's kind of the, the part I figured out.
1: Yeah. What, what, what happened that, that caused you to have to go through three times?
2: I think, you know, it was a lack of mental toughness, I never rang the bell. And that's what a lot of people, when they say, Hey, I can't have this. I can't take it anymore. They, they ring the bell. Um, I had stress fractures the first time I had, you know, tendonitis is different in my knees and I went to medical, you know, and I finally got washed out and rolled out. And it wasn't until before my final third and final time that I was like, you know what, nothing changes. If nothing changes, I, I can't expect to, to just roll on through here, if 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 I don't make some positive steps to do you know do something about it, and I had a pretty good deal. I was working on a small island outside of San Diego called San Clemente Island, where it's pretty isolated. And I had a lot of time. I was working as an EMT, um, and I came across a book, and it's uh, it's God, what's it called? Um, Dancing Mind, Thinking Body, a Taoist way to exceed excel in like sports, business, and, and personal life. And this was a long time ago, before that stuff was cool. And the, the entire book was, it wasn't just a you know, book that you read. It's a small lesson. And then it was either a visualization um, for multiple, you know, hundreds of different situations. Meditations, visualizations, affirmations. And that was the only thing I did differently. And I was older than, you know, I was 29 when I graduated. But when I finally made it through and I went back to Bud's, you know, and then understanding that, you know, it's like the end of a football season. Everybody's injured when they finish Bud's. You know, it's just those ones like tears or breaks. You know, it's it, it's all the, the nagging stuff that still really sucks, especially when you have to perform and put out. That you just have to do it. And my my mental toughness that's what I didn't have before. And, and the good thing is you can train that stuff, and that's what I did. And uh, that was the, the big the big difference. You know, I grad and ironically, I graduated with the same injuries. And plus, you know, I had two stress fractures, uh, some bad ITB tendonitis, and I had a uh, tear in my quad. And it was hard to walk, you know, those last last few weeks, but uh, I made it through. So you
0: think it was just the mental, t- I mean, if you're injured, you're injured. I mean, how is mental toughness factor? I mean, I, I can say that would keep you from maybe reporting the injury, but you're, you're still injured
2: though, right? You are, but it's, again, it's pain. It's not something It's it is mental toughness. It's something that's perceived in your head. As, you know, if, if, again, like if it's not something debilitating that requires like a, well, even I've, I've, you know what, ironically, I tore my meniscus in some follow on training a year later or six months later. That was, it's called, it was called SEAL tactical training. It's kind of the intermediate phase before you get to a SEAL team. And that was, I think, you know, six months as well. But I tore my meniscus right before I, I went through that training and it took me those 10 years to make it through. I sure as hell wasn't going to not make it through SEAL tactical training, and it's called SQT now, SEAL qualification training, it's where the guys get their awarded of the tridents. They change the names, but uh, I went through the entire thing on a torn meniscus that required surgery. So, and it it, it seems out. like
1: uh, something that only a Navy SEAL would say.
2: Well, it's the, the torn meniscus. The thing. It's all mental. Here's what <laughs> I figured out about bloods. People have to have to make it through buds. You have to have a baseline level of resiliency, physiological resiliency, and mental toughness, just to just to you know, you know graduate training. Just to, you know, to even people, show
1: up, I would imagine.
2: Well, I now I would say it, it's like that. There's a lot more screening involved um, than when I went through, and you have to excel. But still, it's a lot of the top athletes. I mean, we had Olympic caliber athletes and pro you know pro athletes that went through, and sometimes they were the first to quit you know, because they, they got some little nagging pain. It's those wrestlers and those farm kids that came off farms, you know, and um, people that endured pain and they kind of had a, a different relationship with pain. They could, they could just endure it a lot more.
0: Did you, did you train to go through before you entered into the seal training? Did you train to start it?
2: Absolutely. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah, I was in, I was in pretty damn good shape back then. I'm old now. So it's a, uh, um, a <laughs> little, little different now, but I mean, I, I was running really, really fast and, and, uh, it was a top, one of the top swimmers in the class and you could do a lot of pull-ups, about 35 pull-ups and, you know, 120, 130 ups, at a crack. And it's, uh, it, and it takes that too. It may, I'll tell you what, it makes it buds more bearable if you're not always getting your ass kicked by the instructors for falling behind on stuff, because they'll, they'll give you special attention after maybe a, a conditioning run or a timed run, the people who are, or kind of at the back of the pack. They get the extra attention that's not fun.
1: I think that most people probably are hearing what you're saying, and it's completely unrelatable to them. Then there's a good contingency of people who, you know, maybe, yeah, I've pushed through some pain in my life, but nowhere near the amount of pain that it would require to complete buds with a torn meniscus, right? I didn't work out this past week because my knee kind of hurt a little bit. That's the thing. Right? To
2: get. <laughs> and that's the you smart know? thing.
1: <laughs> and I think that, that that's most people most people don't even have the opportunity to to test themselves in that way. Right. Um, forget the fact that most people probably aren't aren't mentally able to to withstand that at all. But most people don't even have the opportunity. So they're never challenged and and never fail that challenge to recognize, oh yeah,
0: they, they don't know if they're mentally yeah, they don't tough even enough know, or not.
1: Right. Yeah. But but it sounds like what you're saying is to get to that place where you've achieved the mental toughness necessary to to really perform at an elite level for an extended duration of time you have to make a decision at every moment to not trust what your brain is telling you about limiting your own potential how do you how do you arrive at that point
2: well it, you know again for the most part, just to get in the door, you've had to have some extensive training. You have to be pretty physically fit, and which means that you're continually pushing yourself. So that's a, that's a good start. But you know, there's also, people come into these things with, with varying degrees of, like I said, this baseline resilience, physiological resilience that allows you to have that mental toughness, you know, to um, kind of persevere when, when it, it really sucks, you know, because they've already kind of conditioned themselves to it. Aside from, you know, just a lot of people probably think BUDS is physical. But most people will tell you that that 90% of it is mental. It is that that pushing through, because running, you know, if you're running and you get that that lung burn or you're pushing yourself, you, you're kind of used to that, you know, and you you know you can push yourself further and further. But then you start adding things like cold water, an injury, um, sand that's rubbing on you, you know, people yelling at you, and and some pretty some pretty bad dudes, you know, um, getting after you. But it's funny because at the beginning of buds, at least for me personally, I think most people you can see kind of the, the character of the class. We were kind of scared sheep, you know, around the instructors. We were kind of didn't know what to expect. And and um, by the end of BUDS, and I think they love this, you know, six months later, I remember being out at San Clemente Island, the instructors were trying to, you know, we I think we we're in the getting surf tortured in the water. We were flipping them off and yelling at them. And I this the, the, the instructors secretly loved it because we're like, you can't hurt us. And you get to that point. So you have that baseline, but then you have six months of just forging yourself. Um, and it's it's pretty impressive you know, how I felt uh, mentally and, you know, well, physically. I was kind of beat up, but just overall, you know, just that confidence.
1: Yeah, so yeah. some of that resilience, I'm guessing, is, is gained or, or earned during the experience of BUDS, right? You're going through this miserable experience, and you kind of build up that toughness there, or you or you don't, and then you leave. Yep. What is it that separates the people who... What is it about their life that's different, the people who show up with the requisite level of resiliency, and those who don't?
2: Well, you know, Bud's has had such a high attrition rate, I think it's about 32, about 28% make it through, about 70 or 82, 78, I can't remember, but it's around... Twenty-five or thirty percent of the people that make it through, that start training, make it through training. Okay, so that's pretty high, and it's pretty costly training. So, Naval Special Warfare, for God, probably thirty or forty years, they have done every bit of research to try to figure out what kind of person makes it through there, so we can target them and recruit them to come in. You know, I think I think the last time I checked, this my information is a few years old, but um, wrestlers and water polo people guys they seem to have a higher success rate than than most people um i also think you know i think the the way they broke it down so they officers and enlisted people go through you know so like colonels and stuff like that or you know like your gunnery sergeants but we have you know petty officers and and ensigns and stuff um they go through it all of us go through it together the statistics again they're dated but about 92 percent of the officers that came from the Naval Academy made it through training. I think it was like 81 or 82% that came from like an NROTC program or an ROTC, they made it. And then OCS, you know, where guys went off and did stuff in college um, and just, you know, joined and went right through, but they didn't have any military training. It was about 70%, but overall it's about 30%. And I don't don't think the education necessarily plays that part in it, but I, I do think that that level of commitment to a program Where you can see it incrementally, there's more involved. I think that may have something to do with it.
1: They had more time to to (laughs) of that like looming destination just weighing over their shoulder.
2: (laughs) Yeah, but like at the naval academy, they still play all the games, you know, and they they do physical stuff. Yeah, they had a little bit of exposure to some of that. uh,
1: That's so interesting. Yeah, because wrestlers make sense, right? I mean, it, you say okay, hey, people who do tough things can do other tough things, and wrestling yeah. is tough. Wrestling is like the hardest sport that you could choose to pursue, um, as far as mental toughness, much less physical toughness. I mean,
2: it's that ninety percent discomfort. Of, that discomfort is what builds that mental toughness. You know, intentional. Yeah, discomfort.
1: even when you're winning in wrestling, it hurts. Yeah, even when yeah. you're even when you're beating someone, it's uncomfortable. How and <laughs> I, well, I trained jujitsu for uh, all close to six years, so I didn't. I I've done some wrestling training in my grappling training, and it's the I worst did. part of it. I hate it. <laughs> I'm not good <laughs> yeah. at it, but I I know that if I ever want to get you know decent at jujitsu, I got to be able to wrestle. And I hated the idea of spending my days training to defend myself, but not knowing what to do, not understanding how to take someone to the ground right yeah but you it's understand like, okay, it's I
2: physical but you're constantly getting grind you know you're getting a, your face ground against the you know the mat or or whatever that that or your arm bar or whatever that's just that that pain that you know the level that you. oh have yeah
1: to keep I, I trained um in college at this gym that was owned and ran by a guy who was a wrestler before anything else you know so he had a wrestling background we'd go to jujitsu class and it would you know, it was a little different than other classes where he'd teach us a double leg and then he'd teach us the arm bar, right? Instead of teaching us to pull guard and drop to our back. A lot of, a lot of pure jujitsu guys are mostly focused on a a much more defensive interpretation of the art, right? And I think that that's really where jujitsu came from, whereas wrestling is, sure, there's wrestling defense, but wrestling at its core is very offensive. And, And as soon as we started to do that wrestling training, I was like, oh, man, I'm terrible at this. Mentally and physically, I hated it, and I wasn't good at it. And so I I would, it's a stretch to say that I'm a wrestler, but I tried to incorporate that into my practice and say, okay, well, you know, if I'm going to train four or five days this week, one of those has to be wrestling. And... You know, now I can, I can double leg a 12 year old girl pretty consistently. That's my (laughs) level of wrestling. (laughs) But, but, but the idea that wrestlers would excel in, in, in this at higher rates makes sense. Officers wasn't, that's not immediately obvious to me. I would have thought that it would be the opposite.
2: Well, yeah, and I don't think it's necessarily that they're officers. I think it's that they've been exposed to a four-year military academy that probably has some similar language and, um, you know, some early, super early mornings and late nights and constant, you know, kind of a a regiment, so to speak. That I don't know, and they and they have that as as a motivator too. I mean, people have that's a a long amount of time, and to be an officer um, or to get that, and then to go get to SEAL training. Um, but they, you know, they also, they do have, they go through like courses like mini buds and they they prep for it. They have clubs, like SEAL clubs at the academy. So they're getting exposed to stuff what they know about. And there's a SEAL actually, a buddy of mine was there a couple of years ago as a, a liaison and he ran the guys who wanted to be SEALs, you know. So they were kind of already getting that experience. So it wasn't as much, as much of a shock for them. Um, is what I think. Yeah, to more, get
1: humiliated and belittled by someone who's supposed to be training you is isn't, wasn't foreign to them.
2: Yeah, I mean, that stuff after... I don't God after a few days or a couple of weeks, you know, that just kind of becomes white noise. Um, and yeah. uh, that's kind of what they're training you to do too without shooting guns around you. You know, I
0: had read some and I don't remember where I read this. There was a, uh, recounting of uh, somebody who'd gone through the training and they said that just what you just said, Rick, is that a lot of the, the yelling and aggressiveness and, uh, all of that became white noise after a while and this, uh, this guy who almost quit, uh, one of the instructors took the complete opposite approach. Mm-hmm. And it was just like super sweet to him, super nice to him. Say, man, I know you're hurt, you know, and it's probably be better. And, you know, I hate to see it. But, you know, it was just trying to talk him into it yeah. in the sweetest, most loving, curing oh, way. That, that and he finally, he snapped. He goes, oh, this guy is trying to, he's messing with me. Yep.
2: Yep. <laughs> the guys get pretty smart and innovative. <laughs>
0: yeah yeah so what so it took you know there was a 10 year period going through that where did you go after you finished up uh the seal training
2: um so i i spent you know the six months at buds and then i went off to a dive medicine school for a couple of weeks i was a, a medic and then i went through um army airborne school in fort bragg or excuse me fort bending georgia that was about a month long and then checked into my seal team at seal team one which is in san diego and um, oh I, yeah, Fort Bragg for the medical training, but um, and then once I checked into SEAL Team One, I went through that SEAL tactical training, which is again another five five months long, four or five months, um, and it's again SEAL training. Buds, I wouldn't say it's really training you. I think it's it's assessing you. I think it's like an HR department for the Navy. You know, it's it's selecting the guys that they think that are going to have that mental toughness and the physical um, ability and smarts to do the job of a SEAL and just to really suck it up. Cause it, you know, they told us that you'll that be in combat and, and when you get into the SEAL teams, it's not any easier in BUDS and they were sure right. So you have to prepare yourself and you have to build yourself up to that level. And so anyways, I went through uh, SEAL tactical training and then did a few platoons at SEAL team one, which means the way a kind of a cycle is, is you form up with your group of about 15 or 20 guys. It's called a platoon. And you have six months of what's called professional development. So, if I have a certain skill, like I want to be a, a breacher like that does demolition or become um, a sniper, you know, then they send guys based on the needs of that platoon through these individual schools. And that's leadership schools as well. And after that first six months of, of uh, professional development, you have what's called unit level training. And that's where you and your platoon, and a sister platoon, you spend six months going to all these different training places or, you know, pretty much around the West Coast or around the country, but anywhere from, you know, things from land warfare to diving to SWAT type stuff called CQB or CQC, close quarters combat. Um, you know, and you, you just have, you're honing in your own, your own team, so to speak, like a football team running plays. And then after that year, you have what's called squadron integration training or SIT. Um, Before you deploy and that what that is is where you bring in all the other Elements so like the SEAL team, okay, you have a SEAL platoon. Well, we need intelligence people. We need You know aircraft we need boats. We need explosive ordnance stuff so it's a constant group of bringing all of them together for six months and honing their skills and communications and you know the requirements that you need (coughs) to do and then you deploy for generally around six months and that's where you're you know, you're doing the job for six months straight um, still training always training but but well, you know one of the things that we want to do on the podcast
0: is to, you know is, is to really pull wisdom from people who have different experiences and and look at how do we use that wisdom to inform improve decision making you know and, and really just defeat bad decision making yeah. so uh, it's interesting because all of the training that you're talking about going through are around sort of forming up a a mechanism to, essentially, I would think, create rules that are governing future behavior, really taking out the uncertainty of of the decision-making process. In fact, sort of trying to remove the decision-making process. But it would seem, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, it would seem that once you're deployed, those situations are so highly charged, so different, so in some cases chaotic, that it, it would be very difficult to actually create rules around decision making. And so that's where my interest lies is, is how do you form up a group that is as successful as this, as the SEALs to, to make this, to actually try and remove decision making and then have people who have to make these, these life and death, literally decisions all the time.
2: Yeah. So it's uh, again, it's, it's the training, 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 and you're, you're preparing for every possible contingency, you know, every possible outcome, but you develop what are called standard operating procedures. And the good thing about the SEAL teams is they they allow everyone to be a leader to everyone to think, you know, like I'll give you an example during, you know, the the SWAT type training or the CQB when, when you're going through a building and, um, you know, you've got a a stack of guys, 10, 15, 20 people, they all know what to do when they encounter whatever the problem is, you know, that's coming up. And they, some guys have to pull off into a room and that may, may have been the, the top leader in the platoon. Well, the next guy already knows and has to stand up and, Um, And knows those standard operating procedures, Um, you know, and I think that that's a huge part of it, you know, is to is to minimize all of those those possibilities. But uh, you know, and the SEAL teams are great because they kind of have a, you don't have to be sick to get better. We're always trying to question, always trying, you know, we're we're learning stuff. We're also also trying to question, okay, why are we doing this? Is this outdated? Is there new new stuff that that plays into this? so I, I think you know again, it, it tactically with decision making. There's a lot of things. I mean, with 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 leadership, if guys are talking asking you about career advice or, um, uh, you know, how to how to lead somebody so to speak, or what should they do in a situation. Well, the good thing is is you know you you allow these people to be able to speak, you know, and to kind of come to these conclusions and, and kind of check them, you know. It's um. You know, and, and also to take other people's you know, ideas into consideration, you know, beforehand, you know, obviously when you get into a combat situation, it's kind of, you're on, um, yeah, kind of fire and forget, you know, and, uh, seals are really good. One, I'll tell you one thing that you, so saying, or I think you're asking me about what separates some guys, I think the ability to compartmentalize and disassociate, um, in chunk. So like with, uh, you know, like learning new skills, like a guitar, you don't just sit down and play the entire song. You have to chunk sure. pieces of that and different things. Well, in in seal training in buds, it sucks so bad. It's like, oh my god, I, can I just get? I just need to get through this run. I, this run's yeah. the only thing I need to worry about. And then after that, you know, the same thing. Well, we do that also in combat. You know, we've we've got every little. We've got these points of where we're going, and we know these phase lines. And we know that we just need to do our job. We know what to do in that little moment. We don't think of the overwhelming aspect of what's going on around us in combat. It's just I know what to do right now, and what's right in front of me. And once I get to that next point, I'll be there. Um, so I I think that 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 chunk
1: yeah I think that goes into into broadly speaking a decision-making process that sticks with you for for life I would imagine whether it's resiliency or being able to compartmentalize the I think where Sean where you were going it seems like there are obviously you can't just put a bunch a group of six guys out there in the middle of the desert somewhere and expect them to make the right decision at every turn right you've got to prepare and train with these standard operating procedures, make sure that they know tactically exactly what to do. But then the gray area has to also be trained, right? That resiliency has to be, that's a decision. There's a decision to quit in training, just like there is in in combat or in anything else in life that's hard. There's a, You have a decision to quit. And, and the SEALs, it seems like, have done a better job than any organization that I can think of, of training that out of people. Or finding people that never had it in the first place. Yep. But h- how much of that is conscious? How much of that resiliency is? Are you guys consciously training outside of the you know official training times and officially at buds? And how much of that compartmentalization, that way of thinking, how much of that are you guys consciously focusing on? Maybe when you're not wearing the uniform.
2: Well, before you know, I, I don't think. In the SEAL teams, there has been things, some mental training that we have done, um, you know, some visualization, some some type of you know breath work and meditation type stuff, and that's that's been more recent. And so that's kind of a it, that's if I have a passion, it's for how to develop resilience and uh, you know keep on with mental toughness. And I don't think it's it was a conscious thing ever for me, other than the, before my third time at BUDS. But once I got into the SEAL teams. You know, wars happened. I mean, I was right after, right before September 11th and I did multiple combat deployments. I had the loss of 18 close friends that were like roommates and groomsmen in the SEAL teams, you know, that uh, that died either in combat training or, you know, five of them by suicide. And that'll, you know, your your level of, for me, my, my level of resilience I thought was pretty good, but traumatic brain injury, you know, SEALs were exposed to so many explosives that they have they didn't know this until recently, that repetitive blasts cause traumatic brain injuries. It's it's not like in football where somebody gets hit and they get one part of their brain, you know, bruised, right? From the coup counter coup effect. Yeah. And, and that that part is affected, whatever part of the region of the brain that is, with explosives, right? Even small ones, not, you know, like the, the breaching that we do to, to knock down doors, so to speak. I've been exposed to about four or five hundred explosive blasts in my life. And they didn't find out until a lot of these suic- a lot of seals were killing themselves. And so they did autopsies on their brains and they, you know, their family members donated their brains. And they found out that they had this thing called, their, called this tearing through every region of the brain that causes this thing called astroglial scarring. And it's so after about 10 years, I, I remember it, so it took me 10 years. A buddy, a couple of buddies of mine made it through seal training. So they were 10 years ahead of me. But I remember going, man, they just seem kind of hollow. You know, and I didn't know what it was. I was just like, yeah, oh, they're just, you know, turning into kind of jerks and quiet. But um, it wasn't until the, the end of my career, all these explosive blasts, right? Uh, as well as the loss and, you know, I've seen some other, some bad stuff. I worked in the medical field and all that stuff. You know, I have, seals have to remind themselves every once in a while that they're human because sometimes they think that our, physio- our, our physiology is completely different than everybody el- else's. Um, you know, the resilience is, is, I think my resilience was higher. But that's a lot to ask. And so towards, I remember, God, this is probably about 2014. uh, I remember telling a guy I worked with, I was like, man, I feel like a shell of a man right now. I don't know what it is. God, I was having sleep issues and I got put on hormones and, you know, thyroid and testosterone and a bunch of other stuff. And, I remember when I was getting ready to retire. And this was a few years. I retired about two and a half years ago. So it was probably three and a half years ago. I was doing all my medical appointments and get ready for my VA stuff and disability, exams and all that stuff. And, Traumatic brain injury most most seals will tell you yeah, yeah, traumatic brain injury that's cool explosives, but when you start talking about PTSD they're like nah, that's mental that's mental illness that's mental weakness that's kind of it has been, and probably most guys when they're in would kind of tell you that, and um I had a decision to make you know I did and and uh, coming into the kind of the, the plot of the the show, so to speak I uh I remember I was doing all of these, these different things for balance, I was doing memory, I was going through speech th- therapist for for memory techniques and my eyes would bounce as I'd walk. Um, so I was doing this vestibular therapy and I'd lose balance uh, when I was walking in crowded situations. And I remember when I, I was still in the Navy but I was applying for my VA appointments um, for traumatic brain injury, the psychologist asked, asked me, she's like, why aren't you applying for PTSD? I was like, I don't know, I don't, do I don't think I have it. And she's like, oh, you absolutely have it. And that was a big decision for me at that point it's kind of a that was a you know big catalyst but I was like okay I got to address this and so when I went back you know and talked to my wife and my daughter um, I found out that they'd been walking on eggshells around me for the past four or five years you know I, I reached out to some friends that have known me for a long time that I interacted with regularly I, one of my one of my close friends used to have my brothers living with me at the time but my uh, my friend John used to have to t- get a hold of my brother to get a hold of me and that's just one example so I was kind of starting to isolate myself and when I realized I was having this generational impact on my daughter you know that my behaviors were affecting her that I'm like okay I decided I, I've got to do something about this and I did what everything I could in the military I was you know, they put me on antidepressants and stimulants and I went to counseling and it didn't do a thing um, I think it screwed me up more than anything and so the kind you kind of hear guys talking about stuff you know through the through the rumor mills, and I found out about, uh, the first thing I tried was what is this is called, uh, it's, it's commonly referred to as transcranial magnetic stimulation. So they put a magnet on your head and they, they create these new neural pathways. And you do it over about six weeks, about 30 minutes a day. And it, and it helped. You know, it did. It, it might help my sleep and my mood, but it kind of wore off after a couple months. And I can get to why I think that is that way here in a minute. but. Um, it wasn't until I, I was trying stuff I started to try to meditate and I was um, you know, that was a big thing I was reading everything I could I was proactively engaged in my own my own help, so to speak and it wasn't until I heard about a treatment down in Mexico that I was a little skeptical of but I started doing the research and it's overwhelmingly supportive and I Don't know if you guys have ever heard of psychedelic assisted therapy saying or I'd be surprised if you haven't have it Because it seems like everybody under 30 knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, I'm a, a little bit familiar. Is it, this is like microdosing on psilocybin no. Or, or no? no de- okay. No, definitely not. So the, it, it, I mean it, So what this is is again went through an entire screening process, went through medical cardio, you know cardiology tests and, and labs and everything else, and was screened by a psychologist and went down to Mexico and it's it is super super high doses. Um, like you know Sean, when you and I grew up, kids were probably taking like a gram or two of mushrooms if they ever did that type of stuff. Yeah, I never did any right. of that, But So this is like, it would be like five grams. It, but, but it wasn't mushrooms. It was these two drugs. One is called Ibogaine, and it's considered the godfather of psychedelics. It's an old African um, drug from this tribe out there, the Ibuitis. And they use it for kind of a, a ritual to as they grow up. But um, the interesting thing about about Ibogaine is they found out that it, it really has a, it has a 90, 90% success rate. Of carrying opiate and heroin addiction, that's huge. Okay. Well, they of found out of curing it, of curing it, of being physio curing the addiction, physiologically free. Ted doing blood tests and whatever else they do for that. That literally, there's zero, there's zero withdrawal. You you do this. And it's about a twelve hours. of feels like you're getting hit with a baseball bat. It's, it's it's pretty hardcore and uh, it scares off a lot of seals because it's it, it, you know it's the the medicine is one thing, okay, and that's a huge thing, but it's the the insights you gain that are almost like from. The- so,
0: so I have a question about that. So, so if, if you look at the repeated explosive blasts are changing the physiology of the brain, and I would think that there's some scarring, how, it, how is this, the, this gain correcting, or is it rewiring it's re- connections it's- in the brain to overcome those that distress?
2: Yep. It's one of the only things that they know that can heal. Um, existing injury, but it also reroutes it. it they've done, you know, front or, um, functional MRI studies on it, and you'll, you'll see a normal brain. They'll look at it, and it'll be like some lines here and there, you know, but when they show it on psychedelics, it's the entire, the entire brain is getting rerouted and reconnected and healing. Um, it's, there's so much, I mean, Johns Hopkins has been doing studies on this and a lot of other people. I mean, the heck, Johns Hopkins—it's it, not some fringe thing. They just opened up a nineteen million dollar psychedelic research center on their main campus a few years ago. And you know, so when did when did you do this? This was in two thousand nineteen. You know, and uh, do
0: you have you experienced any downsides to it that you observed?
2: Yeah, the only so the other one I didn't tell you about is called 5meO-DMT, and its nickname is the God molecule. If you've ever seen Mike Tyson recently, he seems like a much nicer person. Well, that's because he did 5meO-DMT. Tony Robbins did it too recently last year or two, um, and about 350 seals. But, um, the only downside is <laughs> after the five MEO DMT experience, you will not shut the hell up. You'll want to tell everybody on the planet about it. <laughs> so that's the only side effect because it's so amazing. And, and, and I'll explain, if you don't mind, I'll explain to you why it's amazing. Um, yeah, yeah. It's again, it's, is a lot to unpack, you know, in a, in a short amount of time, um, but I think if you'll hear what I'm saying, and if you spend 10 minutes with studies or the internet or talking to people, really well educated, sure, sure. smart people, you're gonna say this isn't complete hocus pocus voodoo. Um, I went from being a lifelong atheist, okay? And I'll, let me backtrack. So John Hopkins did a study in 2004 or five where they had 80 or 100 terminally ill cancer patients, they were going to die. And they experimented with what's called a, her- a heroic dose, that five grams of psilocybin mushrooms, right? And eighty some percent of those people said this is the single most meaningful experience of their entire life. Um, You know, I think eighty percent of that eighty, I think they said it was in the top five. But what they found out, what they what these psychedelics can do, if if administered with the right set and setting, you know, the right environment, the right preparation, um, you know, you're in the right headspace, so to speak. They, they can occasion what's called a mystical experience. And psychologists and psychiatrists have you know, in their manuals a rating scale of what what actually criteria has to be met for it to be a mystical experience. And when I say mystical, I'm saying a real live, no shit, spiritual experience. You can coin it whatever you want, you can coin it God, you can coin it mysticism, but it is spiritual. And it's 15 minutes long. <laughs> the the is like 12 hours, and the next day you do the five MEO DMT. 15 minutes, I walked out of there going, I, I just experienced God. And it was so much more real than reality. And the, the, what's ironic or what's interesting, psychologists have talked about this, that people who have these mystical experiences, they will, they will put it up there against anything reality um, uh, that there is. And I'll, I'll even go you one further. In 2020, um, there's a guy named Brian Marescu who wrote a book called the immortality key it's a best-selling book and it's a, if you haven't read it you should he did his undergrad at brown went to georgetown law grew up he wanted to be a priest but then realized he probably need to make a little money right and so he became a lawyer but he had a near-death experience as a kid he wanted to be a priest and then he read about these johns hopkins accounts those three things and he knew scripture really well but he said all three of these things they're so they, they're almost identical they're they are identical he said there's got to be something more to this um, so he took 12 years and to write this book but the reason it took him so long there's way more to it than what I'm talking about obviously it's about 400 pages but kind of the the smoking gun if you will was it took him a few years but he got access into three pretty pretty interesting places the catacombs in rome which is like 30 or 40 miles of you know centuries um, thousands of years of, of, of artifacts and, and things like that. He also got access into um, archeological dig sites around Galilee, which is around where Jesus was at. Uh, and he finally, this is huge, he got access into the secret archives of the Vatican um, into their old, their old sites, right? And they brought MIT out. Uh, there's a new, I, I, I'm going to butcher this up and I always do, but it's some new technology. It's some like gastrospectromy, archaeobotany type of where they can do analysis on ancient artifacts and they can pull out what was in those, those what substances was in this. And <clears throat> so he had 600 holy chalices from these archaeological dig sites, the Roman catacombs and, and, a, and quite a few from the Vatican. All 600, every single one of them pop positive for this substance called ergot which is 10 times stronger than lsd and so it, again where I, when i went through my experience in 2019 i was like i don't know what to make of this i knew about the mystical experience but i was like i was like i i mean i know it's real to me it was real and i believe it to be real and i but i still i was kind of lost not, you know but it wasn't until i read brian's book even though i was an atheist before that i read his book and i'm like okay, this isn't some new th- fringe thing. It actually talks about the pagan continuity hypothesis, which was the Dionysians or the the, the Greeks actually were doing this 2,000 years. And, you know, if you think of it, it's probably about, you guys are up in more Dallas area? Yeah, Fort yeah Worth, I mean, this whole region. Fort Worth. Fort Worth. So, I mean, it'd be like Fort Worth, Austin, and Houston, that whole region yeah. where all this history is coming from. Yeah. Um, you know, it's uh, you, you just got to put things in the time. And again, I don't have a perspective, so I'm trying not to offend anybody, any listeners or anything about this or you know, being a, a heretic, so to speak. But it's a small area. And if you think about the, when the Roman emperors and all that stuff were around, I mean, they well, had I don't think it war, makes
1: war. it doesn't. <clears throat> in my belief, it doesn't it doesn't take away any of the truth of those beliefs if it so happened that they were influenced by these substances. So to take it at w- with 100% face value and say that, yes, that's a fact, they were influenced by these substances, how does that make it any less, any less real or any less true um, to, to interpret the Scripture in the way that we've been interpreting
2: it? It doesn't. Well, it, it doesn't. You're right. But if you talk to somebody who says, no, well, the earth is only 3,000 years old based on Scripture— and they won't budge from that position. Well, then I wouldn't bring this position up to them either. <laughs> so, well, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I I've
0: heard that you know that there's this there was that uh, chemical in in the wine back then, and uh, you know I, I couldn't help but think that may be that if that's how they made wine. I I, I don't know if we know if that was added, it was added. or if that was you know uh, uh, that it was always added, yep. you know, or it was added in those specific. Vessels, and and that may be why there is this uh, sort of universal across all religions this prohibition or control on that substance. Pete, Brian talks about you know, that, that, in his that book. A lot of the religions, yeah, speak speak to drinking wine. They, they all do. Right? It was around. Four- and it may be that it is this gateway to, uh, you know, a, a, another realm that is as as you said is as real as anything else yeah, right more so who's to say your experience wasn't
2: real yeah i mean it it's funny He has a quote in the book and it's a lot of people say that they believe you know they believe in god and i'm like cool that's awesome man I, I i feel pretty fortunate i feel like i got to experience god and um so brian has a quote in his book that says yeah i've gotten to meet him in the last six months and hung out with him quite a few times he's an awesome dude but it's uh it does it really matter if you've jumped in the ocean does it really matter if you believe in water you know, and that's kind of the what a lot yeah. of people they have. I mean, just think about if if this wasn't real. It, again, it's just people's beliefs. I think a long time ago there's this experience that people were basing this off of, and then they kind of went out and tried to talk about it. And and God dang, when I got back from my experience, some of the guys that I went through were like, "This is like a lot of stuff I read in the Bible. Go read about this. Go read about Moses and the burning bush, which yeah. the I found out the acacia tree or whatever it's called has exorbitant amounts of DMT in it. You know, and um, which is what the burning, but there's like eight trees in Jordan and that's the one, that's one of them, <laughs> so. But uh, the, you you know, um, the big thing afterwards, Sean is, um, if you don't mind, sorry to cut you off, but I, the, the big thing was when I got back, okay? When I got back to my family and they, my wife and daughter cried for weeks. They were so happy. My daughter was like, I got my daddy. and My wife was like, I got the husband I married back, you know? And uh, it's, um, it was pretty amazing and I've maintained my four non-negotiables that I do every day because you want to keep that neuroplasticity alive. You know, the one thing I didn't talk about, the mystical experience, if if people don't have meet that criteria for a mystical experience, they can have results that can kind of start to wane after a while. Okay. Um, but when people... Okay. When I,
0: so so these smaller, if you think about when, you know, people do this recreationally, you um, that that they're not getting to that mystical level. They're not getting to this point where you you got to correct.
2: And that's why right. the the preparation, the environment you're in. But also they use like a mask, so it's it's not like you're looking at the pretty lights. It is such an internal. I mean, it's 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 pretty amazing. You know.
0: So is you you mentioned that prior to this experience you were atheist. Uh, how did you come out the other side of that? What are your how do you think about things now.
2: I mean, I'm a believer based on that experience uh, without a doubt. And uh, in in what? In God, (laughs) in God, in that there's. Well,
0: I mean, okay. So, but, but explore that more. I mean, so you, you, you had this experience, you, you believe that there is a God. Did you, is that where it ends or have you settled into some, uh, structural faith system, that supports that, or where, where did you where did you tell me about that that journey
2: after you got got back? I, I so afterwards, until I read again, until I read Brian's book, I knew it was God, but I thought it was so diametrically opposed to anything that would be church related. Until I read his book, you know, I thought it was mm-hmm. just some hippie stuff, but it was all universal love. It was this this being like bathed in your mother's womb, but it was it was visual, but it was also just a it was like somebody loading a shotgun. <laughs> with the, the secrets of, of the universe from the beginning of whenever and just blasting it in your head. It's like a river of knowledge just going by. And it's, it's, it's universal too, a pretty common, the, the, the unique thing about 5-MeO-DMT, where mushrooms, people have different experiences, LSD, they have different experiences. Um, ayahuasca is called the spirit molecule because they have a, a spiritual experience, but it's kind of different as well. A lot of, there's a lot of commonalities in the God molecule. That it, the way people explain it, you know, um, but the experience is one thing. It's what I came out with afterwards, and it is a belief that, that when that that are we are eternal, one hundred percent, and we've always been eternal, and that everyone gets the big surprise party at the end, you know, so to speak. But um, again, it wasn't until I met Brian, and ironically, he's a, we were on an email together when I met him, and uh, he, there he had mentioned some name. We were on about six or but. Archdiocese in the Catholic Church, uh, uh, a monk, um, and a couple other people. And they're talking about this name. And I had to Google it, and they were talking about Pope Francis. So they are, Brian works with Harvard Divinity School a lot now, and has for years. But the Pope is really interested in his findings. And so um, there's a, uh, a high up member in the Catholic Church that based on, I believe, the Pope's kind of, hey, let's let's kind of look into this. I don't know if he chose to do it on his own or whatever it was, but Um, he did five MEO DMT and a 78 year old archdiocese in the Catholic church. And I was there to witness it and he came out of it. And I think his words were, he's like, I can't believe this It's all true. It is all true. And, uh, you know, it's a real fast acting mess and it wears off fast. and, And he still stands firm to that, you know, and he was at least open enough to, to to look at that because nobody thinks it's a hallucination who do it. Right. Right.
1: What's interesting to me is that it doesn't. Go ahead. What a couple of things. One is that the idea of what's real, right? For me to understand if this table is real, well, okay, I can touch it. I can see it. But also if I bring other people into this room, they'll see it and be able to touch it as well. And so it's not just that I can touch it. That makes it real. That, there are things I cannot touch, right? I can't touch COVID. I guess it's real. There are a lot of things I can't touch and I can't see. I can't touch or see air, but I, I surely know it's real. But everybody else has an identical experience to me with air as we do with this table. And what's interesting about the the DMT experience is that everybody seems to have the exact same experience, or at least a very, 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 very similar experience, the imagery that people use to describe it, the way that they feel afterwards, the, the duration of it, the long lasting effects of it—it it all seems to be so similar. And and so when we talk about whether or not it's real, well, shoot, if it's <laughs> if it's a shared experience, uh, what else does it need to be real?
2: Yep, no, I agree. And if, if at the end of the day, if it's if I die and I die and there's nothing there, it doesn't matter, man. It, it enhanced my life. And the lives of people around me at a level that is, is immeasurable, you know, and, and that kind of shared experience. I remember I kept hearing about ineffable that I wish I didn't know what that meant before I went there. But ineffable, it's undescribable. It's impossible to describe in words. So when people tell about their experiences or do stuff, they're describing the indescribable. And that, that was the first words when I came out of the experience. And I went, I sat up and I went, I now know what the word ineffable means because <laughs> there's no way you would ever be able to do it justice what it is um
0: you know it's it's interesting to to think you know that you went through that looking for a a cure to some uh damage you know physiological damage and uh looking for a cure and kind of found something completely different that uh, brought you to a different reality yep. um give me goosebumps so it's yeah that that's interesting so it's, it's interesting that uh your family noticed the change right away is that and has that been a more long lasting change
2: yeah it's been two and a half years almost so it's uh i think october of 2019 so you know two almost two and a half years but uh, again it's uh tell
0: me about the decision to to try that because that's a non-standard approach and you'd you'd have to you'd have to admit that that's that's i mean you're, you're having to go to mexico to do that right yep um i think that's what you said so did that concern you at all just to say, Hey, I'm, you know, this isn't sort of blessed by, uh, uh modern medicine. This isn't, this isn't paid for by, by my insurance. I'm having to go, you know, to a different country. Did that concern you? I, I know the outcome turned out good for you, but, uh, tell me about that decision.
2: Well, it, again, it was, I was at a point where I, mean, I was on antidepressants. I was drinking too much. I was on stimulants. I was suicidal. You know, I, I mean, I, I was suicidal, <laughs> and i was happy in my misery though you know and it wasn't until i had this realization about how much i'm affecting my family you know that 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 my daughter is going to be the recipient of of my behaviors or irritability or anger or whatever it was or just just me not you know being a good dad or whatever it was and um i don't know i just i had an epiphany moment i was like you know if 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 again and i did the research and talked to a lot of people in the organization the nonprofit that i went through it's called vets um a, a retired seal uh, named marcus capone and his wife amber and it's veterans exploring treatment solutions and they're freaking amazing people you can find them all over on podcasts and stuff now they're working with a lot of big people but you know i talked to to marcus on the phone for quite some time and then you know all the the preparation it's uh it never i never ever once thought about turning back once i i, I did a little bit of the preparation, and that's kind of the, the seal way, you know, is to do that preparation. What um, you said
1: stood out to me is that you were happy in your misery. And yeah, I, I think I, I'll, that's that's a, a common experience for a lot of people, even if they don't recognize it. Like we, I think that we've all had experience in our life or a, a time period, whether it was brief or, or prolonged, where we weren't living a life that in any way represented our ideal self. We're not living up to our values. We're not making good decisions. For some people, that's a that's a matter of weeks, and for some people, that's decades. For oh. some people, it's permanent. But but what's so dangerous about that moment is that we can we can stay there because it's comfortable. It, it, it's comfortable despite the pain, right? Yep, despite despite the misery, it, it is comfortable to just drink all day. Sit on the couch and and take antidepressants yeah. Yeah, there's <laughs> as, no as miserable as it sounds.
0: Well, you know what the rules are. I mean, you you know what the outcome is. There's there's not a lot of you know surprises there. You know, it's when that changes that it becomes really challenging. You know, when you're faced with, oh, how do I how do I make new decisions in the face of a a new circumstance?
1: Yeah, right. some right. of that comfort is because it you know it's repetitive. But I think also some of that comfort is that it's you know, it, it, it prevents us from seeing if we're, if we're living a lifestyle, like where we're consciously making decisions that are harming ourselves, we're, we're making duller and duller that image of who we could be. And, and the duller that that image becomes, th- that means the harder it is for us to see. And, and, and once we can no longer see who we could become, then we can't feel bad for not becoming that. I can't yeah, feel, yeah, yeah. I can't feel sadness for that loss of who I could be at my best if I refuse to look it in the face.
2: Yeah, yeah, you're right. And, then, you know, it's it's interesting. One of the things I've picked up that was recommended to me during the, you know, when I was going through this whole process, and I, I told you guys about that book I read before I went through SEAL training, the third time that changed it. And I just didn't do any of that stuff afterwards. But I've, I've since, for the last two years, two and a half years, picked up a really, Non-negotiable every morning a morning routine that involves gratitude practice, you know gratitude like some sort of practice. I, I actually do notes and write and um, and if you've never heard of gratitude, you know journaling or gratitude practice. I mean, there's, there's this guy Andrew Huberman who's a neuroscientist at Stanford. I mean, he's got there's so much research on it and why it works that it is unfrickin' believable the subjective well-being that you will your life and the, also the, the the relationships that you will have with other people by not being cynical by seeing other people's perspectives you know and that's a huge decision just that that's big in decision making too if you already have all your preconceived notions in your head and never see other people's alternatives or other people's point of views because you don't have the ability to do that gratitude practice has changed my life and i was the bad when i first heard about it i was like pff, pff, gratitude journaling what are you kidding me am i like doing that yeah. stuff yet but then once i started researching i'm like yeah, no we, this works we
0: did that at uh in our office on, on some meetings that uh we would lead that we would have weekly and i would lead this meeting and, and i started having everybody go around and just share with the group what they were thankful for yeah. you know and it it went well the first few times and people then the energy kind of died down on it and people were like oh, I don't, you know i don't have anything you know go to the next person and and I, and I stopped, I said, why, why do you think we're doing this? Yep. <laughs> you know, I And, and went through the, the exercise of that, that actually this, this gratitude, if, if you find a way to recognize the gratitude that is internal and, and express that yep. to another person, that there's actually a, a physiological change in the lowering of the cortisol yep. and and it's a it's a healthy thing to do. Yep. Uh, not just relationally, not just for the person that you're expressing that gratitude to, but but for your own health. Yeah. It's uh, it's huge. I was yeah, just it's not about thought, making, making that person drive feel up here. good.
2: Well, it, it, believe it or not, there. So I was listening to a podcast yesterday, and I think this this came out. It's Andrew Huberman, the neuroscientist, and he's like the gratitude master. But I think it came out in November. And and, and Sean, it's probably he's probably referencing the same studies that you did. That gratitude for yourself or what you're grateful for that's that's a big deal. However, the emerging research has shown that if you can receive gratitude, so in those meetings, if if you were telling, let's at the next meeting, I want you to come and tell so and so what you had, you know. What you're grateful about them and them receiving that, I forget. There's the whole neural connections, and all that crap. But the 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 subjective well-being of how you feel about yourself is your, it increases your life way more than just what I'm grateful for. You know, so I thought that was a really interesting thing I heard yesterday.
1: Yeah, yeah. But, to yeah. have someone
2: else receive the gratitude
1: that you're giving them is that what you're saying?
2: Well, so like if I was giving, out, I was like, Sanger, man, you got your, if you know, if I knew you real well and was telling you what I'm grateful for about you, but I am grateful for you guys giving me this opportunity to, to, you know, to express these views and to share my story and to hopefully help somebody. And what you're doing is amazing. And that is real. So you guys hearing that receive more benefit than if I was telling myself, oh, I'm grateful for my wife because blah, 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 and this is how she makes me feel. They're both awesome. Yeah. But the, the giving gratitude or receiving it from other people has more of a, a Impact, so to speak.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. I think that it it goes a long way to changing how we view other people to 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 intentionally express that gratitude. You know, I um, there's this really good book by the Arbinger Institute called The Anatomy of Peace, and and one of the concepts they talk about is how we will will put other people in boxes so that we don't have to address their humanity, and we can interact only with, with them to the extent of our preconceived notions about their motivation, their actions, who they are. And by by doing that, we can exist in this perpetual cycle of never addressing each other's humanity, not treating each other like people. And we treat each other as as obstacles or as hurdles in our own way to getting what we want for ourselves. And to simply show someone gratitude is in addition to all of the benefits that you outlined is acknowledging their humanity and, and removing my ability to treat them as an object, to treat them as an obstacle and to, to minimize them or to place them in, in a box. It it forces themselves in my head doing that, or in any of our head doing that. And in our hearts, it forces them out of that box.
2: Yeah, and it's got to be a daily practice. So it's like going to the gym. You're not gonna hit the weights one time at the gym and all of a sudden be you know Arnold Schwarzenegger, so to speak. Yeah. So it, it takes that consistency and a, a practice, uh, just like meditating, you know, meditating, you have compounding. It's like compounding interest. It goes like this, you know, at a slow, um, kind of incline for a while, and then it dramatically increases. And I really noticed that with with my meditation practice after probably, God a few months, just my self-awareness, my thoughts that were on on autopilot. You'll never, you know, because again, we're efficient human beings. We, we come up with a, a, a neural pathway and a habit or a, a behavior, and that becomes on autopilot. And It's when we're aware that we're doing that, then we can only start to break that cycle. And that's where like gratitude journaling and meditation can really help people out. And, um, you know, I wish we had some more time to talk about it, but I would absolutely, if you're not, I would, it, you don't have to be sick to get better. Uh, so to speak and it'll really enhance yeah. lives relationships work relationships and the ability to be present for people and actually listen you know I love that uh, that's wonderful that's wonderful good. I'm gonna I, I have so many more books I have to read now after
0: talking to Rick
2: <laughs> <laughs> well if you want to hit me up Brian Morescu Brian has a 10 minute little uh, like a, a an animation that some guy did I forgot what it's called I think it's the the best kept secret in the world or something in history The best the best yeah. kept secret in history it's on YouTube it'll give you kind of a it's analysis okay. of the book.
0: Yeah, we'll we'll put a link on that on the on the show notes and, and Morgan's get, got her work cut out for her with uh, all the books we <laughs> we thrown at her. Uh, but uh, hey, Rick, how can people get a hold of you if they want to
2: uh, follow up with you or anything like that? Um. Well, I mean, we can we can email me at my my company name, which is you know Rick R I C K Anstrom at uh, at Langskip L A N G S K I P L L C dot Com, and um, interestingly, Langskip is a Viking ship. It's the Norse term for a Viking ship, and they're really innovative. And I thought it was kind of cool. And a lot of stuff in history.
0: Hey, Rick, thanks, thanks for your time. Yeah. Thanks for talking thank with you so us. Thank so much, Rick.
2: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, guys. I appreciate it. No, I really appreciate it. it was Great All talking right. with you. <laughs>
0: My takeaways are—it's kind of interesting. My my first thought is that I was on a journey, and I thought we were going one place to talk about uh, <laughs> action in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, from a Navy SEAL, and we took a we took a left turn uh, that was so fascinating. Uh, and so my my takeaways are around the gratitude, the gratitude journaling, and the 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 really the need to create a morning habit uh, of of that gratitude and meditation and i think that's i think that was something that that kind of hit me
1: my takeaway is that just like we have to train our physical bodies we have to train our minds and and that can aid us in the decision making process because ideally we'd want to make decisions absent from resentment absent from stress um Free from those negative emotions that can weigh us down, and it's going to be hard to deflect stress, deflect resentment, deflect victimhood at each individual decision, and so that training comes away from decision-making opportunities. It comes in meditation and in gratitude practice, and in other areas where we can center ourselves around healthy ideas and beliefs. That way, when decisions present present themselves. We're able to make those decisions with less influence from those negative feelings. Perfect. Thanks for listening to this episode of Decidedly. I hope you learned something I know I did. If you thought our show was five-star worthy, please check us out on iTunes and give us a five-star review. It really helps out a lot, helps people find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. Check us out at DecidedlyPodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Until next time, I'm Sanger Smith with Sean Smith. This is Decidedly.
0: Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers who are not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their own opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.